Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled action upon our oaths do find the defendant as to count one first degree murder guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I'd have said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have been Good evening. This is clear and convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdict. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A., Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for Season 4 of Clearing Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, and this is Episode 2, Update, Part 2. Tonight, we're going to talk about new developments in some of the cases we covered during our first three seasons of Clear and Convincing, and update listeners on developments and statuses of Oklahoma versus Glossop, Louisiana versus Hayes. Arkansas versus Stacey Johnson and Liddell Lee, Tennessee versus Payne, and Texas versus Reed. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. You know, it would probably help if I unmuted myself. Good evening, Lisa. It sure would. <laughs> I'm sitting so, here. How are you? How are you tonight? Hey, I can't complain. Just uh, hey, I got stimulated. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, I have to wait and see if I did. Um, I have I to check know. after the show. I don't know if you guys are gonna get the uh, get the uh, bad weather tomorrow night, but I almost texted you this morning because I thought it was supposed to come tonight and be like, hey, we may have to cancel or we may lose service in the middle of the uh, lose service in the middle of the show. But I, I mean, uh, luckily, I we hope missed not. It by night. Well, luckily we missed it by night. It's actually supposed to get pretty rough here tomorrow. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, that's that's. Um, I guess. Yeah, it's. We're kind of looking at maybe bad weather tonight, but uh, they have a fifty percent chance of being right. Right. You know what I mean. So. All right. You ready to get started? Since our last episode, we found out that. It takes a lot longer than we thought it would. 
<laughs> Absolutely, and I don't know. Uh, I didn't mean to spring that on you at the last second, but I don't know if you were able to add the uh, add the story I sent you right before. Uh, right before. Check your you e- check your email. I I sent you what I've got on the notes. Okay. And yes, right we on. do have we have breaking news. Uh, Michael, thanks to Michael, his keen eye, uh, Ronald DeFeo who murdered his parents and four siblings on November 13, 1974, died on Friday, March 12, 2021, at the Albany Medical Center uh, in New York. An official cause of death is yet to be determined. However, uh, I watched an interview that he did in, I guess, about 2010 or so. And he claimed to have all kinds of of old age related. He was in his sixties. Mm-hmm. And he had uh he had lived kind of a hard life, so uh was a heavy drug user, uh drinker. So um he passed away. He would have been in his sixties, maybe close to seventies. So uh, he has passed away. Yeah, definitely older. Yeah. See, I'm looking him up online now. Uh, Yeah, he was born September 26, 1951. So he was 69. Uh, He would have turned 70 in September. Right. So, uh, and he really would have fallen in last week's or week before last episode mm-hmm. because it's he's a D. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so thank you, Michael, uh, for a very good job on breaking news. Not a problem. So. Woohoo, Michael. <laughs> Yay, Michael gets a gold star. Yay! All right. <laughs> so, our first case that we're going to talk about is Oklahoma versus Richard Glossop. Glossop was convicted of the, I believe it was 1997 murder uh, for hire of the owner of the motel Glossop managed, Barry Ventrice. Vantrese was beaten to death in one of the rooms by a 19-year-old uh, meth head who was close friends with uh, Glossop, who had been living at the hotel um, for a long period of time, allegedly working at the motel. And uh, Glossop basically encouraged the young man to kill Ventrice, they would split the money. Glossop was looking at losing his job at the motel. Uh, While he claims that he wasn't worried about that, he didn't care about that, etc., he was also alleged to have been stealing from the motel, and perhaps he was worried about Ventrice calling the cops and getting him for embezzlement. And for somebody with no prior criminal record, I would think that facing potential criminal charges would probably concern one. 
Right. Uh, in 2020, Oklahoma apparently finalized its execution protocol uh, while they had considered going to nitrous oxide or, or nitrous gas. Uh, they were unable to find a delivery method for that, so they are now going to uh, enact a three-drug protocol. And in 2020, Glossop and several other inmates on Oklahoma death row uh, challenged that protocol in federal court. Uh, in September of 2020, three of the inmates' claims were dismissed on summary judgment because basically Glossop versus Gross, the prior challenge to the use of midazolam, uh, had already decided those issues. Uh, mm -hmm. There has been limited discovery done, and a renewed motion for summary judgment has been filed, which is still pending. Also, in January of 2021, Don Knight, an attorney for Glossop, who I don't think has really officially enrolled in the case, uh, he's not from Oklahoma, uh, he has begun claiming in the press that he has new evidence that exonerates Glossop. Uh, one of those things basically is that he claims he's located a woman that worked at a gentleman's club near the motel who says Sneed bragged to her about his plans to rob people at the motel. Um, and he very well may have bragged about plans to rob people at the motel. Um, I think they claim there are other people that Sneed's bragged to about robbing people at the motel. Again, he very well may have bragged about robbing people at the motel. Um, and he robbed Mr. Vantrese, and he beat him to death. And then the money from Mr. Vantrese's car to Richard Glossop, who took half. Um, they claim, you know, they claim to have all this new evidence, and basically all of it is stuff that could have been discovered at the time of trial. Because it right. all goes back to when Glossop was tried. And remember, Glossop was tried, and then his conviction was reversed, and he was retried. So he's already had two trials. It could have, all this could have been discovered in prior post-conviction claims, mm -hmm. or prior post-conviction litigation. So, I think, personally, I, I, Knight has written a letter to D.A. Don Prater requesting all kinds of things, reports and polygraph report and um, a videotape from a, a gas station that was near the motel that allegedly showed the room and, um, you know, room 102 where Mr. Van Treese was beaten to death. And um, I think mostly that's all meant for the court of public opinion propaganda value. Mm -hmm. It's not really going to get Glossop anywhere, and I think Don Knight knows it's not going to really get Glossop anywhere in court. So he's going to keep it out in the public eye so that people will think, oh, my God, this is an innocent man about to be executed for a crime he didn't commit that his accomplice committed by himself. 
Um, so uh, that we'll yeah, we'll have to see how that develops. Glossop has has exhausted all of his state and federal post conviction remedies. Right. So. There's really nothing, um, although Don Knight did testify at a state hearing, and it looks like Oklahoma may be putting together an innocence conviction integrity type panel Mm -hmm. to look at uh, convictions like Glossop, Julius Jones, and a couple of others. We'll have to see where that goes. Okay. Okay. and then uh, Greg Harris, nothing really new in his case, but I did do some digging. Um, the best I can figure, because the Bar Association doesn't have Chiquita Tate's actual bar number available anymore, is that she began practicing law around 2005. And she really did have a good variety of civil cases, including tort cases, bodily injury cases, uh, damage cases. She dealt with some domestic cases like custody and divorce. And she also had a few succession cases, which is basically filing paperwork in um, a deceased case. We call it se- succession in Louisiana, whereas most states call it probate. Um, mm-hmm. So really, and uh, you know, in looking at the docket at 19th JDC, and that's just at 19th JDC. I didn't look on any other surrounding parishes. Um, for someone her age practicing only about four years, she really had an impressive, you know, docket of cases. Right. And, you know, as we talked about, she had one a case, I I couldn't figure out which one it was. But she had won a $500,000 judgment in a case. Mm-hmm. That's just the way the, the, way the records are and uh, the fact that the records during that time period aren't electronically available, it's kind of hard to tell which case had the, the $500,000 judgment. So... Um, and that's, you know, that's basically to look at that. And, you know, she worked for a little while before she ended up going back to law school. So, um, but it really was a shame that right. a promising legal, uh, a promising legal mind like hers was stamped out by a controlling soon-to-be ex-husband. Right. Um, the next right. case is Louisiana versus Cardell Hayes. Uh, Hayes was convicted of manslaughter uh, from the death of defensive end Will Smith, of the formerly of the New Orleans Saints. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, um, Kianis Mas Macho resulted in the death of Will Smith, the wounding of his wife Raquel, and Hayes facing 40 years in prison. Uh Or 25 years in prison. I can't remember what his sentence was. Uh, 
at any rate, when the uh, United States Supreme Court decided Ramos, which dealt with non-unanimous jury verdicts in felony cases, when the U.S. Supreme Court held those to be unconstitutional, Cardell Hayes' case had not yet become final. His conviction had not yet become final. So, after the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals decided his direct appeal and affirmed his conviction, Hayes filed a writ at the with the U.S. Supreme Court, which was essentially not opposed by the Orleans Parish District Attorney's Office in light of Ramos. And so Hayes' verdict, uh, conviction rather, has been reversed, and he has. It's been re, his case has been remanded to the parish for a new trial. Uh, he has also sought release on bail pending that new trial, and that is an issue that the trial court is going to decide. There was there was going to be a hearing one day last week, but I think it got postponed. And I did a little bit more research, and Ramos will be applied to any cases which were not final at the time Ramos was decided. That means any cases in which the direct appeal process had not concluded by a, a decision with the appellate court or the Louisiana Supreme Court or the delay to file a writ at U.S. Supreme Court had not expired, then those cases will be eligible for a new trial if the conviction was based on a non-unanimous jury in a felony case. Mm -hmm. So so that is uh, Hayes and we will um, once the case goes through the trial and the direct appeal process if he is convicted again, um, we'll look at the case again. It's kind of weird because a, a retrial sometimes can benefit the state more. Right. Because the state knows exactly what his defense is going to be, and he's kind of stuck with that defense. True. So he can't he can't come up with something else. Um, in order to to try to to uh, avoid culpability for the charges, hopefully, um, what will happen is that the the parties will get together and they will come up with a compromise that both sides can live with. I think he's culpable. And I think manslaughter was actually a fair verdict by the jury. Um, I, you know, I don't think it was second degree murder or really, but I don't think he was thinking. He was just, he and Will Smith were play, playing Kianis Mas Macho. Mm-hmm. Who's the tougher guy? Mm-hmm. And uh, it, you know, like I said, it resulted in Hayes ruining his life and Will Smith losing his. So um, hopefully that will be the case. 
Um, and we'll look at it if, if he's convicted and, and once his conviction becomes final, we'll look at it again. If he's not convicted, we'll talk about it then. Okay. Um, and then Texas versus Leon Jacob, his conviction and sentence are both final. He made a request for a petition for review by the Court of Criminal Appeals via petition for discretionary review, which the Court of Criminal Appeals denied. The mandate in his case issued on April 9, 2020, and his deadline to seek a writ at the U.S. Supreme Court was July 8, 2020, which he didn't do. So he is um, he's going to serve his life sentence. Uh, I didn't see anything online that suggests any kind of state post-conviction. Mm-hmm. But the deadlines to begin that process are certainly coming up. Because I think you have a year from when your conviction becomes final. Mm-hmm. So that would be July 8th, 2020 at the latest. Right. Um, and he's got, you know, he's the post-conviction issue he could raise is the error in the indictments uh, and proof at trial that he raised on direct appeal. Then Arkansas versus Stacy Johnson. Uh, mm-hmm. The lethal injection challenge filed by multiple Arkansas inmates on death row has been decided by the judge. I think it's Judge Baker at U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Arkansas. She rendered her decision in May 2020. She basically found that the inmates had failed to prove their claims regarding the drugs used by Arkansas, the risk of suffering uh, that those drugs would uh, subject them to, or any other errors in Arkansas's protocol. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she dismissed their claims, or rather granted the state judgment, you know, uh, or granted the state's verdict on those claims. Um, And there are some uh, viewing protocols that were agreed to by the parties during the litigation, and those are going to remain in in effect. So, and then in December of 2019, the Arkansas Supreme Court affirmed the trial court denial of additional DNA testing requested by Johnson in state court. Um, I don't know if you remember, uh, just prior to Johnson's execution, the Arkansas Supreme Court returned his DNA request to the trial court because basically the trial court denied the request without holding a hearing. Okay. And as it did, as it did with Eccles, Baldwin, and Ms. Kelly, the Arkansas Supreme Court said, you can't do that. You have to hold a hearing. So the trial court held a hearing, denied the request, because basically uh, 
identifying the Caucasian hairs found are, is not going to exonerate Stacy Johnson. Some right. of the hairs found have already been linked to Stacy Johnson. The cigarette butt's been linked to Stacy Johnson. The shirt's been linked to state. You know, the shirts have been linked to Stacy Johnson. Not, alternative DNA findings on on other evidence isn't going to change what has already tied Stacy Johnson to Carol Heath's murder. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really, uh, and you know, it's it's kind of funny that he could have pursued the boyfriend of Carol Heath or the ex-boyfriend of Carol Heath as the alternate suspect at trial. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I think Brandon Ramsey testified at trial, but Johnson waited until he was dead and then started pointing fingers at him. Um, so the most notable about that Supreme Court decision, however, was the dissent, which essentially substituted the justice's opinions for those of Johnson's trial jury when it comes to evidence as a way of twisting and turning to make it seem like DNA testing is something that really needs to be done in Johnson's case. And if you go to the Arkansas Supreme Court website and listen to the arguments, which are very enlightening. I mean, the the justice, one of the justices makes it seem as though, you know, the state of Arkansas has a duty to test this DNA. As though Johnson's conviction is not final. And it's it's just, uh, it's kind of activism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that was the most interesting thing. Um, was that dissent that just twisted and turned, kind of like uh, Judge Fletcher's hundred plus page dissent in Kevin Cooper. So it has no presidential val- presidential value. But um, it shows how you can twist the facts and spin the facts to achieve the goal you want. Mm-hmm. And uh, then Arkansas versus Liddell Lee, uh, the DNA re- testing that was requested by Lee's sister, Patricia Young, has been ordered by a consent order in February 2020, which... Personally, I don't think Jacksonville should have done. Um, Although I don't think they have put a lot of people on Arkansas death row, they are kind of creating a precedent if they have somebody who dies in prison and then his family decides he was innocent. You've now let the family of Liddell Lee test DNA, they're going to argue that you have to let them test it too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I hate to point it out, but Liddell Lee tried to get DNA testing prior to his execution, and it was denied based mm-hmm. on the fact that 
DNA testing he wanted to do would not have changed the outcome of this case because the evidence against him in the murder of Deborah Reese was overwhelming. Now, granted, the Innocence Project and the ACLU have hired a lot of experts to attack the eyewitness testimony, the forensic testimony, um, the medical examiner's findings, but all of those things were not done when Liddell Lee was on trial. They weren't done during post-conviction. And no court has ever declared Liddell Lee was innocent. No court has ever exonerated Liddell Lee. Um, There was also a subsequent order to the Arkansas State Crime Lab in August 2020 authorizing the release of some evidence. Apparently, the testing by agreement is going to be by an outside lab. So the Arkansas State Crime Lab is going to release some evidence to that lab. Um, It has been seven months now. There's no word on any results. Um, So we'll have to wait and see uh, what happens with that. Uh, And then in April of 2020, uh, Patricia Young and one of Lee's daughters sought appointment by the probate court as heirs to pursue a wrongful death against Mm. Jacksonville police personnel involved in Lee's arrest in 1993. Mm -hmm. Um, The petition that ended up being filed was filed on April 17, 2020, on the three-year anniversary of Liddell Lee's execution, or shortly before the three-year anniversary. However, it was filed before the probate court issued an order appointing Miss Young and Lee's daughter as as heirs to pursue this claim. So there's a problem, um, more than one. First of all, when the petition was filed, it they had not been appointed by the probate court and the petition did not name and join all statutory heirs under Arkansas law, which is if you don't have an, a, a representative appointed by probate court to pursue a claim, you have to name and join all heirs. Okay. If you don't do, you know, if you don't have representatives appointed and you don't name all heirs, the petition is a nullity. It, it's like it never happened. Uh, the appointment was signed in May of 2020, but that may have been too little too late. Also, another problem that I have is that the petition for DNA testing was basically copied by the attorney representing Ms. Young and the daughter. And that was used as the basis for the wrongful death claim. The problem is that the errors, the alleged errors, the alleged negligence, the alleged violations committed by the personnel all occurred in 1993. In fact, most of the complaint deals with the lineup for the witnesses, which 
was in the very, very early stages of the case. And that was more, way more than three years before the, that occurred in 1993, which is 26 years, 27 years before the petition was even filed. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is a problem because while the attorney is arguing that the wrong was Liddell Lee's death, what put him in prison and what you're claiming the defendants did all happened in 1993. Right. And so there's going to be a problem with that. Uh, one of the officers who had been served filed a motion to dismiss, right. and that is still pending. Um, the grounds for the dismissal include the flaw in the parties at the time of filing, as well as the fact that all the actions and negligence cited in the position occurred in 1993 at the time of Lee's arrest. Um, and none of it occurred during his subsequent trial or post-conviction claims. So, um, as I said before, the, the petition the petition for damages is poorly drafted because it's literally a cut-and-paste copy of the DNA testing petition. That right. was filed in January 2020, and then the attorney, in in response to the motion to dismiss, has I think compounded his error by cutting and pasting a large part of his petition into his response, which means that most of the allegations in the motion to dismiss aren't addressed and are largely unrefuted. So we'll have to see how that that uh, progresses. There weren't any hearings or anything listed on the docket, so um, it's probably going to be – they'll probably set a hearing within the next few months unless the parties are in the background trying to work something out. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, in Arkansas versus Crystal Lowry, her request for clemency or a reduction of her sentence was denied in July of 2020. So she will serve whatever sentence she was uh, was pronounced. Um, I think it was life, not positive. And. Um, Jeffrey McDonald, U.S. versus McDonald, he has filed a motion for compassionate release, citing his age, ongoing kidney disease, bouts with skin cancer, and hypertension, which all could lead to a bad outcome if he were to contract COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, the U.S. attorney has argued against release. There was a hearing on March 11th, at which time the U.S. attorney advised that although McDonald had been offered the Moderna vaccine, he had declined to take it. 
And, of course, Judge Fox passed away uh, late, I think in late 2019, early 2020. So there is a new judge overseeing the case, and he uh, has taken the issue under advisement, and his decision is pending. Hmm. Okay. And if McDonald gets out on compassionate release, I am going to be upset because he didn't show Colette, Kimberly, or Kristen any mercy. He has lied for 50 years about what happened. He's never taken responsibility for what he did. And, you know, now he's like, oh, I'm an old man. I'm sick. And if I get COVID, I'll die. Oh, Lord. Although he's tested, he's also tested positive for COVID and remained asymptomatic. So there's that too. Um, California, Manson family, really the only one of note is Leslie Van Houten's challenge to the denial of parole by Governors Brown and Newsom have been largely unsuccessful. The court dismissed an early court challenge um, I think she was granted again, and Newsom has denied again. Uh, basically, they just don't find they just find the facts of the crime too horrific to let her out of prison. Right. Um, Bobby Boussoulet and uh, Bruce Davis have also uh, come up and been denied, or. The parole board is granted, but, again, the governor said no, not letting him out of prison. Mm-hmm. And then uh, go to uh, next case is Tennessee versus Purvis Payne. The DNA results are in. While there was unknown male DNA found on part of the knife and a pair of glasses at the crime scene, the DNA was insufficient to identify anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some DNA in other locations in the apartment, including on another part of the knife that did not exclude pain. Uh, he was excluded by some DNA. Um, the attorneys at the Innocence Project, of course, don't want to accept the results that don't exclude him. Uh, they don't want to find those results to, or to acknowledge that those results are relevant to his guilt. And right. um, they're harping on the fact that unknown male DNA was found. Mm-hmm. But again, it, it's unclear whether the unknown profiles are from one person or are from multiple people. Right. And it's kind of unclear whether they're touch DNA. If they're touch DNA, it could be an evidence tech, you know, who sneezed in 1990. Mm -hmm. And so Payne's DNA challenge was uh, dismissed on January 25th, 2021 by the judge in Memphis, Shelby County. I'm sure 
Payne's attorneys are now going to challenge that. Um, so they may file a, a claim at the appellate court. Um, so next is California versus Scott Peterson. After 15 years, because I think he was convicted in 2005 or 2006, his direct appeal has finally been decided by the California Supreme Court. And essentially, he is going to get a new sentencing trial due to the judge's erroneous dismissal of some jurors who stated opposition to the death penalty on their juror questionnaires. The California Supreme Court found that um, Peterson didn't have a fair and impartial penalty phase jury because those jurors were not given the opportunity to undergo questioning and kind of rehabilitate themselves. Um, how that doesn't affect the conviction on guilt and innocence, I've read the opinion multiple times, and I still don't stand how they can say it only affects the penalty. Uh, but that was their that was their holding. They also um, found against Peterson on multiple other grounds that he raised. Uh, they found he wasn't entitled to a second change of venue because his case had been subject to such widespread publicity. Uh, a second change of venue from, um, I think it was Redwood City, would not have made a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, they found the dog trailing evidence was properly admitted because the record showed that the handlers and dogs were sufficiently trained the dog was sufficiently reliable and there was evidence that corroborated the dog's findings. Um, They also found that juror number five, who had basically talked prematurely about his opinions of the case to other jurors, he was properly dismissed and that there was no evidence to support the dismissal of juror number eight, who an attorney came forward and claimed that a bartender told him or her that juror number eight was in there talking about Scott Peterson case, in the bar, talking about Scott Peterson case. And hmm. when, they, when the juror, when the bartender was questioned, he kind of asserted the Fifth Amendment. <laughs> right. It was kind of strange. But then he did say that never happened. I don't know what that person is talking about. And so basically the facts didn't stand up to support dismissal of juror number eight. Um, so the conviction on guilt and innocence was affirmed as the court didn't believe that the error affected the fairness of the jury during the guilt and innocence phase. I don't quite understand that. But Peterson did take a writ to the U.S. Supreme Court, which was denied on February 22nd, 2021. 
Um, and I, I think the writ was limited, I, I, but I don't remember what it was for because I didn't really, there was too much paper to read. <laughs> um, right. And then with his, he, at the same time of the direct appeal, Peterson also filed a state writ of habeas corpus. And the California Supreme Court has ordered a hearing on one of the juror claims raised in that writ. Basically, one of the jurors, a young woman, had denied being a victim of a crime. And after trial, Peterson's attorneys somehow discovered that she had taken out a protective order against another woman for threats made while that juror was pregnant with a child. Mm-hmm. State has filed a 155-page return disputing Peterson's claims, and there are some other documents and other filings that were going to be going on. Um, but that is going to go back to the trial court for hearing. Uh, the state has filed uh, an affidavit from the juror who basically says, I didn't equate what occurred as being a victim of crime. And she Hmm. didn't take out the protective order. Her boyfriend took the protective order out. Really? She was just maybe a witness to one event. But most most of the problem was targeted toward the boyfriend. And so it's it's basically going to be just uh, there's going to be a hearing on that issue and that issue alone. For right now, um, I I don't think the Supreme Court has decided the writ, uh, and they won't decide that writ until the hearing takes place in the record and the judge's recommendation on the issue is returned to them. Um, also, Peterson has, at this point, waived speedy trial on the punishment phase, and he's basically waiting for the habeas corpus claim to be decided before proceeding on the penalty phase. So, or the new penalty phase, and I think he's hoping that he's going to get a whole new trial. And... Um, Next is Texas versus Rodney Reed. This one is going too quickly. I ordered documents. They came in. I checked the record the next day, and there's more stuff being filed because the parties are are getting ready for these hearings in May. And um, one interesting thing, Reed sought discovery, which basically amounted to issuing requests for admissions, interrogatories to the state to concede that all of Reed's conclusory allegations are true, that Stacy died before midnight, that, you know, Jimmy Finnell confessed, that, you know, all these different things that Reed has alleged. Um, I think they missed a good opportunity for a great public relations tool, 
And instead of filing these in court, what they should have done is just posted them online for Reed right. and all the little minions to, you know, Roderick and all the little minions to discuss. Um, Judge Langley denied the request for discovery. Uh, you're not really entitled to discovery at this stage in the game. You should have discovered all this shit before you filed your writ. Mm-hmm. Um, you should not be at this stage asking for documents from the state. Now, for some reason, David Fisher's attempt to get documents has become a Brady violation uh, because apparently in their minds, and this includes the attorneys, um, that if somebody won't produce what David Fisher asked for, that means the trial attorneys didn't get it. Okay. When it's totally separate things. I mean, you know. Um, so the hearing is going to go forward on in May of 2021. Another thing in, in January, apparently the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals got a little fed up waiting for the writ to be returned to them. And they filed a an order basically saying that the, this needs to be concluded. Um, this may have been due to the fact that there had been multiple continuances in the state court, in the trial court, but the TCCA wasn't kept in the loop on those developments. Um, what should have been done is that when they had to make, you know, when they had to continue the first hearing, which I think was September, or the, the, was the first hearings were set in early 2020. When they had to continue those, they should have gone to the TCA and said, due to COVID-19, we're having problems coordinating this. We can't have that many people in the courthouse, et cetera, et cetera. So we're continuing the hearings to this date. And then when they continued the second time from February to May, they should have contacted the TCCA and said, we've had to continue again. And both parties have agreed to this continuance. So um, I think it was more a housekeeping measure than anything else. Um, but the hearings are going to go forward in May 2021. Um, the parties have made some concessions in discovery, but there have also been motions to quash filed. Uh, Reed is trying to obtain grand jury materials, and it looks like they have uh, reached a an agreement on of those materials. And I think basically Reed wants to see what kind of evidence it was against Jimmy Finnell, which is none because all of his witnesses that came forward prior to his 2019 execution – None of those people came forward in 1996. None of those people came forward in 1997. None of them came forward in 1998. They all waited till 2019. And then they decided to come forward. So we'll have to, we'll have to see what, what that is. But uh, I'm going to order more documents maybe once I get stimulated. Um, and 
once the hearings conclude and the judge makes a decision, we'll devote mm-hmm. an entire episode to the claims, the hearings, the evidence that was uh, offered by Reed at the hearings, uh, the counter offered by the state, and then uh, what the judge's decision was. Okay. So, all right. Uh, next case is Texas versus Rudier. Um, this was kind of interesting. First of all, the DNA testing has been completed in 2015, but the results were sealed. Tell who asked to wow. seal those results. Although I would expect it wasn't the state. Right. Uh, in we're coming up on six years, there's been no litigation regarding any exculpatory DNA findings, which to me says that's because there are none. Um, there have been examinations and re-examinations of uh, one of the fingerprints, but again, no litigation that suggests any exculpatory result in that in the examinations. Uh, another interesting thing was that uh, a 16-year-old by the name of Ryan Kester was initially granted access to the court files and the evidence by the judge. That was then opposed by the DA, and unfortunately, um, the court reconsidered and ended up denying Ryan access to as much as he wanted access to. Um, I do think he got to access some of the information, and apparently his belief in Dolly Rudier's innocence has now turned to a belief in her guilt. So uh, I'm, I may try to track him down on Facebook and see if we can get him on to talk about that. Oh Lord, the FBI from by way of Lisa O'Brien is going to work. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's actually not that difficult to track down people on Facebook. He posts on one of the groups I'm in. Oh, and cool. uh, but again, you know, I mean, I can, I can. The inference I draw from the fact that DNA testing was completed in August of 2015, and there has not been a hearing or a motion to vacate her conviction. Nothing has been filed by her. Right. It obviously wasn't good news. You know, so, and it could, it could be simply that it's inconclusive. Mm-hmm. It may not be a smoking gun DNA result that irrefutably ties her to the murders, but it's not enough to exonerate her. In other words, there's no unknown DNA. Um, but, and, and, you know, maybe Ryan can shed some light on that as well. Absolutely. That would be cool. So, yeah, that would be cool. Um, there's not really that much, there's nothing really new with Hank Skinner. Um, Mm -hmm. everything was submitted 2019 
and nothing has happened. The TCCA has not decided, you know, basically the DNA did not exclude Skinner. And while his attorneys argued that his DNA should have been in more places than it was, (laughs) and what was there was just because he lived there, um, nothing's really happened. I mean, that's not a that's not a very strong argument. No, no, and um, I think they also had there was a resubmission for reevaluation of mixtures, and it kind of turned out that um, I think they were hoping that he would be completely excluded, and he mm-hmm. wasn't. So um, I think the probabilities changed to some degree. Um, And then Pamela Smart, New Hampshire versus Pamela Smart, um, she had been caught in possession of morphine. I think she had tramadol pills in her cell. Now, when you're in prison, you can't have medication in your cell. It's not allowed. Basically, you go, however, you know, if, you, if you're supposed to take a medication twice a day, you go to a window twice a day, you get the medication, you take it there, and then you go about your business. Right. Well, that she way, had, she was found with tramadol pills in her cell. Yeah, that way I guess because she's... people from selling their pills and stuff. Right, exactly. And they can control, right, who has what. Mm-hmm. Um, so apparently, you know, Pamela Smart thinks because she had these injuries and she needs this medication and the rules don't apply to her because she's been such a model prisoner, which isn't really true, um, that she can do what she wants. And so she was caught in possession of these pills. She lost some of her privileges. She lost visitations. Um, she lost her position as a counselor. She filed a civil suit over punishment in federal court, and that has been dismissed because basically the judge said it comes down to the fact that you're not supposed to have tramadol in your cell. So it doesn't matter why you need the tramadol. You don't have it in your cell. Right. Period. Um, and, you know, and I'm, I'm sure she had some good excuse for why she went and got it and decided not to take it at that time and kept it for later. Maybe she wanted to take it before she went to bed. I don't know. But, again, you know, the punishment that she got was deserved because you can't have tramadol in your cell. Um, and then she also was denied the state, uh, the governor or the state parole board denied her a hearing on her request for a reduced sentence, which I mm-hmm. think we briefly talked about. So, um, you know, again, she's an adult. She arranged to have her teenage lover and his friends kill her husband. 
um, she arranged to have an uh, airtight alibi while her husband was being murdered. And that makes her slightly more culpable than the teenage lover and friends who actually carried out the killing and pulled the trigger. And she just cannot deal with that fact. Okay. You know, and she still to this day says, I didn't arrange it, but how were they going to know where you lived and when your husband was going to be home? True. Except you told them. Very true. So, um, and then the next, Let's see, I'm trying to find all my notes, and I I had some more notes. I don't know where they are. Oh, okay, there they are. Um, okay, Larry, Texas versus Larry Swearingen. Uh, Judge Langley has not been arrested for manslaughter uh, in connection with his signing of Swearingen's execution warrant. Oh, okay. There have been no legal filings made at all since Swearingen's Swearingen's execution. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that David Fisher's predictions and claims regarding Judge Langley and the execution are erroneous. Uh, Adnan Syed, he had filed a writ to U.S. Supreme Court uh, regarding the I think it was a reversal of the Maryland Intermediate Court. Uh, that writ was denied on in November of 2019. Uh, of course, HBO aired the case against Adnan Syed. Right. Um, and there was DNA testing done, and the only DNA of note, of any note, was female DNA found on a rope that was near where Heyman Lee's body was buried. Mm -hmm. Um, There was no match in any DNA database. It's unknown female DNA. Uh, While it doesn't inculpate Adnan Syed, it doesn't exonerate him either because okay. it's not on no male DNA. Uh, it's not Don's DNA. And so um, another thing that's troubling is that he hasn't filed a federal habeas claim. And it's been more than two years since his state post-conviction claims Concluded. Right. So I don't know what they're waiting for. Because um, you don't have an unlimited time to file these claims. Right. You're, you, you obviously have a certain amount of time to file a timely appeal. Correct. Well, this this would be raising the federal habeas claims. I mean, you know, he can he can raise in federal court all the stuff he raised in state court. Uh, 
and mm. he just has to, you know, he has to raise constitutional error of those of those errors, um, or cite some constitutional aspect that was violated in connection with those errors. Um, and I don't, I, I don't understand why, when his writ was denied to the U.S. Supreme Court, why they didn't immediately file a federal writ of habeas corpus. Right. So uh, we'll have to see. If he files one, and if he files one now, he's probably going to have to deal with uh, the fact that it's probably not going to be timely. Hmm. Okay. So, I mean, I don't know if you remember, but uh, Damien Eccles had state court proceedings going on, but they were collateral to Rule 37, and so he filed his federal habeas claim one year after his Rule 37 claims had been concluded in state court. That's kind of the same principle. Tells so, um, like I said, barely remember when they got out, so yeah. <laughs> You're breaking so, news. Yeah. Um, so that is, we'll have to wait and see if anything happens or he's just, you know, he's just resigned to his state and they'll keep the public opinion, the court of public opinion fired up. But there, there are no. They know there are no legal grounds to challenge his conviction. Um, and then finally, the last case is uh, Charles Victor Thompson. Uh, and I did not get a picture of his victims. I forgot about him when I was looking for my pictures yesterday and today and so I I neglected to put up a picture of Denise and the male victim I can't remember his name right now I'm having a senior moment Um, so yeah I I, and I I apologize for that that was an oversight on my part Um, he has The uh, Fifth Circuit affirmed his denial of habeas corpus in federal court in October of 2019. Um, They basically found that there was no evidence that the state knew Rhodes, one of the informants, was involved with Thompson until after Thompson solicited Rhodes. Um, Thompson also failed to show the materiality of that information to his Brady allegations. In other words, even if he'd had that information, which a lot of it was a lot of it was brought out on cross-examination of Rhodes, um, even if he'd had that information, it wouldn't change the outcome of the trial. Um, so they affirm, affirm the district court's denial 
of a hearing. They granted a COA with, with regard to roads, and again, they affirmed that on in October of 2019. Um, he also filed a writ at the U.S. Supreme Court, and that was denied. So Thompson, uh, he's out of Harris County, and Harris County, for some reason, is not asking for uh, execution date. So it looks like he is going to continue on his uh, post-conviction because I'm sure he'll file, he'll discover, quote, new evidence and file additional claims. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the the victims in, in Charles Thompson's case were Denise Hayslip and Darren Kane. And I did not get pictures of them, and uh, I should have. So so that pretty much wraps up, I think. Um, this one went a lot faster than last week, last time. We had, we had a lot to talk about last time. This one, shockingly, with some of the ones we had in here, especially Reed, went pretty quick. Yeah, well, Reed is just there's so much going on, and uh, and I can't even keep up with. We could do a whole other episode on Reed. Trust me. Yeah, and after the hearing, and after the judge decides, um, uh, we will go ahead and do that. Um, And like in some of the cases in Dipolito, the state's response to Dipolito's state court. writ that is due on Thursday and Mm. so I'll check and see if they filed it it'll be interesting to see what they say although I've said she should have gone with ineffective assistance from the beginning because it really is ineffective to have a judge spend I don't know 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes explaining what not to do when you're questioning your witness if you want to keep the door closed on something Mm -hmm. and then for you to immediately first question out the gate is the exact question that the judge has told you do not ask you know because they were trying to negate intent. If they could negate intent to kill Michael DiPolito, they could get Dahlia DiPolito off. Mm-hmm. And that's all well and good. You try to negate intent with your expert. You try to, to negate intent with a couple of other witnesses. I think Woody Jean and um, Frank Ramsey. But now the judge has told you, if you try to negate intent with Muhammad Shahade, then all these things that Dahlia said to him that led him to think she was serious and put him in the arms of Boynton Beach police, those things are going to come in. And the judge spent several minutes explaining that. And Rosenfeld, it was like he didn't hear him. So... 
uh, it'll be interesting to see what the state comes up with in in uh, response to DiPolito's allegations. That'll be, that'll be certainly, it's always interesting to do these update shows at the beginning of the season and then look back at what's happened over the last year because you just yeah. see, in certain cases, you see people get more and more desperate as they go along. Like, at this point, I think we've all, ag- we'll all agree, uh, we'll all agree that Rodney's kind of throwing Hail Marys, but, you know. Right. Definitely. Uh-oh. Reed Timmer's in Arkansas. I don't know if you know who that is, but he's a he's a uh he's probably the most famous uh storm chaser in storm chasing and he's in Little Rock. So as a matter of fact I know exactly where his picture on Twitter that he just posted is. It's actually in North Oh Rock. no. Yeah. Yeah. Is it kinda like is it kind of like seeing Jim Clem- uh, not Jim Clemente, who is the weather Cantor. guy? Cantori. Oh, I almost guarantee Cantori will be here tomorrow. It's like with this, there's an 8 out of 10 on what they call, if you're familiar with Cantori, you're probably familiar with the Torcon that Dr. Greg Forbes gives certain areas when there's severe weather outbreaks. Um, mm-hmm. It's out of 10, and we are at an 8 tomorrow, I believe. Wow. Yeah, I haven't seen a day like what they're expecting tomorrow since, like, 2013. Oh, my goodness. So. Yeah, sorry. Well, I know we've got... Random, but I just saw that, and I was like, oh, damn. Yeah. Well, I'll... I'll... Be thinking about you tomorrow. Yeah. So. Well, I mean. We've got some. uh, In this metro area, usually we don't get tornadoes. But 30 minutes up the road in Mayflower and Conway, oh, yeah. That's where they usually, the big daddies go. So. Yeah. Could have fun tomorrow. Yeah. That's going to be tough. So, well, we've got some interesting things coming up on the schedule. Uh, we are going to be interviewing Caitlin Rother about her new book. Mm-hmm. And I believe... Death on Ocean Boulevard. I believe I gave you a case. I could be wrong. I believe I gave you a case that we're going to cover pretty quick here. Maybe Which two. one is that? Which I don't one? remember. Don't ask me to remember. I just text well, you the names of these cases whenever I'm watching them on, like, true crime shows. Well, I hope I I hope I took note of you. Well, I have to send you an I update mean, schedule tomorrow. Me and you're like, okay, we can do this whenever, and I'm pretty sure we have two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but you don't remember which one. So how are you going to know if we even do them if you don't remember? Well, you know what? Maybe I'll just go back and rewatch the episodes I've already watched. Okay. <laughs> and uh, we're also finally, finally doing uh, an interview with Natalie Voss. Uh, she is the wife of Joe Nevels. 
mm-hmm. who was on one of our horse racing episodes. We're going to talk about women in horse racing. Ah, because okay. when we I was growing up. We ain't done a horse racing uh, episode in quite a while. Yeah. Uh, because Well, yeah, 2020 was so goofy. True. Um, but yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk to Natalie Voss because when I was growing up, uh, most of the men in the sports writing, including horse racing, looked like Oscar Madison. And now a lot of sports writers are female, and in horse racing, a lot of sports writers, a lot of announcers, well, not really announcers, hosts. Uh, and some even authoritative hosts are women. You've got Acacia Courtney, Maggie Wolfendale, Brittany Erton. You've got Natalie Voss, who just won two Eclipse Awards in two different categories this year. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a prior Eclipse Award winner. Uh, Joe Nevels has also won an Eclipse Award, which was wonderful. Um, Natalie also is the um, human to Jitterbug, who is a columnist with the Chronicle of the Horse, and Jitterbug has her own Twitter and Facebook pages. Um, so we're going to talk to Natalie about women in horse racing and the other causes in horse racing that she supports, including aftercare and um horses leaving the track and and having a new career or just a life as a pasture pony. Oh, that'll be fun. And, you know, how we we owe it to them because they give a lot. We owe it to them to see that they, they have a good quality of life from the day they're born until the day they die. Absolutely. I always like our horse episodes. Yeah, so that is going to be, um, I've I've been looking forward to that and hoping for that, Um, and I I hope it helps that I sent Jitterbug uh, her candy corn, Mm. (laughs) so she'll she'll put in a good word for me, Um, so we'll be doing that on April 20th. We're going to interview Caitlin Rother. Uh, we're going to enter. You and I are going to interview her, and we're going to post it as a bonus episode on May fifth. Uh, and then a few other okay. cases we're going to look at. Uh, we are going to look at the Santonia Brown case. That is uh, Tennessee versus Santonia Brown, and the allegation is that Santonia Brown was a child sex trafficking victim who was. Uh, wrongfully convicted of murder and and sent to prison. Hmm. And we're going to look at the uh, evidence in the case against Santonia Brown and whether the claims of sex trafficking really hold up. Um, we're also going to look at uh, Texas versus Celeste Beard. Beard was married to a multimillionaire uh, communications magnet in Texas and um, had a fling with a female named Tracy Tarleton and got Tracy Tarleton to shoot her husband 
who after several months um, died and Celeste Beard was convicted of his murder. We'll talk about that case because there are allegations that Celeste Beard was framed and is innocent and wrongfully convicted. And then um, what is another one? We're we're looking at next week. We're looking at Skylar DeLeon and Jennifer DeLeon. Um, they are they were convicted of the murder of Tom and Jackie Hawks, retirees from Prescott, Arizona, who brought their 55 foot yacht, the well deserved, to Orange County, California, to sell it um, while they had enjoyed living life at sea and living part of the year in Mexico and uh, part of the year in Arizona, they wanted to move permanently back to Arizona and spend time with their children and grandchildren. And so they were going to sell the yacht. And Scholar DeLeon, who was a former child actor, who only appeared on one episode of the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers um, as an extra who was uncredited, uh, he posed as a buyer and with his accomplices, John Fitzgerald Kennedy and Alonso Machen, took the boat and its owners out for a cruise from which the Hawks has never returned. So we're going to talk about that next week. And um, Caitlin's schedule uh, with her new book uh, won't permit her to join us to talk about that case. But once her schedule calms down, we'll see about arranging uh, interviews with her uh, to talk about her book, Dead Reckoning. And then also I want to um, talk about uh, another book that she wrote. Um, and I can't remember the title. I can't remember the title right now. Uh, but it was about a, a woman who worked for a crime lab. <laughs> who poisoned and killed her husband. Hmm. Turns out the woman was a meth addict and was just in over her head um, with her drug addiction. Damn. I think Kristen Rossum was her name. Um, so that's another one that, that I'm going to, I'm going to wait until after the book review, the, the new book, calms down and let her know that whenever she's available for to go back to the past and revisit these books, we'd love to have her. Because she was Absolutely. a great guest. Even you know, even even though we kind I kind of caught her off guard and and she could only spare about an hour, it was still a really great hour and went by very quickly. Hmm. So. Absolutely, it did. It was a perfect interview, honestly. Yeah. And uh, another case we're going to look at is uh, State of North Carolina versus Michael Peterson. Hmm. Peterson okay. was convicted of the murder of his wife, Kathleen. Um, he was granted a new trial uh, based on error at his original trial and new evidence and he ended up entering an Alfred plea 
kind of like the West Memphis Three. Huh. And while he claims yeah. he's innocent, he did enter an Alfred plea. Well, I mean, the West Memphis Three don't even claim they're innocent anymore. They just keep the mouth shut. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> um, I, and I, I'm still waiting. Now that Jesse Sr.'s dead, I'm still waiting for uh, Miss Kelly to lose his shit and uh, blow the lid off of... Because I think the only thing keeping him from publicly admitting it was his dad. He didn't want his dad to know what he'd done. Right. And his dad didn't want to believe what he'd done. So his dad kept, you know, talking him out of taking responsibility. <laughs> sorry. I'm okay. sorry to hear you know, for y'all to hear that, but I was really thirsty. <laughs> hey, it happens. It happens. So, and those are the only cases I can think of. I, I don't have, I shut down my laptop before I emailed myself everything I needed. So. Darn it, Lisa, how dare you shut down your laptop? I know. Well, when I get stimulated, what I'm going to have to do is go out and buy a new one because the one I have, after 15 minutes, it freezes up and I have to shut it, do a hard shutdown, mm-hmm. and then bring it back up, and then 15 minutes, it does oh, it again. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to need you to replace that sucker. Yeah, so, um, and I, I have to find a computer guy to take the hard drive out of that mm. laptop and put it in a case so that I have the hard drive. Okay. And then the the person can do whatever they want with the with the body. I think the motherboard's getting ready to go. Yeah. Because I had a prior laptop that crashed, and it was because the motherboard burned up. Right. Yeah. Because is more than likely, more than likely it is. I mean, I love I love Hewlett Packard's, but after five years. It's like the fan inside the Hewlett Packard doesn't work anymore. Hey, now don't be telling me that. That's and what they I got overheat. With my first Emmy. That's what the desktop is. Uh, I haven't had that. I haven't had that experience with the desktop. Okay, I good. have the desktop that I'm using right now. I believe my father bought it in 2008. Oh my lord. Now, it's running Windows Vista. Oh, oh, that's worse. And the Google is really old and is no longer supported. You know, the Chrome is no longer, but it works. Hey, that's all that matters. You know, it has, it has its moments, but it works. That's all that matters. And it's, 12 years old. Heck yeah. So we should be, you should be good with the desktop. It's just a lap. That's been my experience with the laptops. You know what you need to get? Things that are giving you a full 1400. I'm going to need you to just go on and get one of them Apple MacBooks. I do not. I repeat, do not like 
Apple at all, ever, ever, ever. Finding first programs. Off, first off, shame on you. Second off, no, honestly, you shouldn't touch a MacBook because you'd have to learn. It's not a lot different than a regular PC, but it's different enough mm-hmm. that you have to learn how to use it. I, I've worked on Apple computers before. Right. I mean, I started programming on Apple. Okay. When I was in high school. Because Apple was the first personal computer. So you're a little bit familiar with Mac operating But system. part of the problem with Apple and Mac is that you really are limited on programming. You really are. I mean, you have to, a lot of companies, because PCs are more prevalent, a lot of companies, you know, either require you to get a separate program just for the Mac operating system or... Um, or, you know, they just don't make a, they don't support it. Right. So, um, yeah, I, so I would, I would never have, and I have a friend who swears by Mac. I I mean, Mm -hmm. but not me, not me at all. Right. So, um, and another thing interesting we're going to be talking with uh, Natalie Voss about is underscore her uh, thoroughbred makeover hopeful for 2021. Oh, nice. Uh, underscore is a retired racehorse. And every year there are a couple of different thoroughbred makeovers, basically where you're training uh, a retired racehorse for a second career. Um, and Natalie has entered with Underscore, who is now known as Blueberry. Um, hmm. So she is training Blueberry for a potential second career, even though that his home will always be with her. Um, I, I don't know if we talked about it, but uh, uh, Cosmic One, Zenyatta's first colt, is in uh, was in a retired racehorse project, thoroughbred makeover. And then, of course, this week Drew Brees retired from the NFL. I just got to bring that up. Yeah, I was waiting for you to bring that up. Yeah. Um, love the Saints and love the story behind him, but it looks like uh, dark times are coming. Well, uh, I think um, Taysom Hill and the new guy, whose name I don't know yet, I, I think both of them have some pro- promise. I, I think it's yeah. just going to be a matter of them getting the playing time and developing. Well, I mean, right now, Taysom is going to be your future. And the kids, the kid, I watched him during preseason. The kid is definitely impressive as a player. Um, The other guy, by the way, Jameis Winston, he's a uh, former Heisman Trophy winner that just 
was terrible in Tampa Bay. Um, mm-hmm. He'll probably be riding the bench for most of, you know, most of it. But, yeah. Uh, right. Yeah, Taysom Hill. I mean, the only thing I see with that kid is he doesn't have the arm that Breeze has. But, you know, he's mo- more mobile than Breeze was. So, he opens up a right. – he takes away a certain piece of the game that uh, – that, uh, Sean Payton likes to use, and then he adds another piece of the game, though. So I mean, it could it could work out. Yeah, I I think that's what I mean. Taysom Hill was what uh, two? He played three games and he won two. Yeah, something like when that. When Breeze was out, something like that. I mean, he did pretty well. Plus, I mean, yeah. you got to give him credit, too. He sat behind Breeze. So, except for Tom Brady and Peyton Manning, who else is better to sit behind and learn from? Yeah. And, you know, again, he's he he needs the experience. And, but I think it'll come. And he's, and my sister and I were talking about this yesterday, he's overall a better athlete than Breeze was. Oh, absolutely. Um. So, and I think the arm too will develop, and the brain. I, Breeze, it wasn't really the arm so much as the brain. Yeah. Plus, I mean, let's be honest, you can't replace the level of a, of leader that Drew Breeze was too. That dude just right. oozed charisma and woke up and could give a speech that'd make you ready to run through a wall. Yeah. And he he was, and I have heard uh, they did, they covered it on the news yesterday, and and they interviewed a you know a man on the street, and people who had met Breeze, that was the the overall, he was such a nice, genuine person. While I'm thinking about you know, it, he always I'm, had time for fans. I'm. So- so glad we sat here and took this sidetrack before we got off of here um, because I wanted to ask you this question. We talked a little bit about it last night on American Idiots, but uh, what do you think about the third-degree murder charge being reinstated for uh, Chauvin? I believe he's now charged with second, third, and I believe manslaughter, I want to say. So, I mean, I would think that one of the three is going to stick. Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, I don't know what the elements are. So it's kind of hard to know. I think if anything, manslaughter, because I think his conduct was to a degree reckless, Mm -hmm. but it's kind of hard because if you read the, um, if you read the transcript, uh, Floyd was complaining about not being able to breathe from the second the cops encountered him. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't get in the car. He's the one who asked him to put him on the ground. And you got to understand, some people, they kind of, um, 
they try to get officers to relax their guard and then they use that opportunity to try to get away. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that could be what might have been on George Floyd's mind is if I can get him to relax a little, I can run. Because he didn't Mm want to be arrested. Um, And I'm also troubled by the substances that were in his system, that he was complaining of issues breathing before he was even put on the ground. Okay. He was telling them he was going to die if he went into the car. And that's, it's again, that's hard when you have somebody who from the time you encounter him says, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. How do you believe that he really can't breathe? True. When he seems to just start saying it as a way to get you to leave him alone. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. So. Keep keep an eye on. Like I said, I just wanted to get your thoughts on them reinstating that. Yeah. Um, And I, I really don't. You know, I don't think it's right for public pressure to determine who is charged with what crime. Well, remember, he actually Just because second, but they dropped the third when they charged him with second. So it seems like what ended up happening was this judge came back and was like, and we're going to make sure you don't slip through the cracks on the technicality, so we're going to toss third degree on there as well. Just in case they can't prove intent for second. Well, but that is... Uh, and that's me reading the tea leaves, though. Yeah. Okay. I don't think that they can prove second degree murder first of all mm-hmm. because um, okay let's see well the only reason why the I intentional say I- infliction or attempt to inflict bodily harm I don't know I don't know that they're going to be successful in saying that what Chauvin did was intentional, intended to inflict bodily harm. And that's the thing. And I think he was trying to control. I think what it's Mm going to come down to is your definition of intent, because I think what they're going to focus on, at least the prosecution side of things, I think they're going to focus on, well, he should have immediately stopped whenever he said, uh, I can't breathe. He should have immediately stopped and started. Uh, what's the way the cop said that one time? Uh, he should have stopped and immediately rendered life-saving aid is the way that the cop said the one, when it happened. But it's, as I said, when you read the transcript, mm-hmm. George Floyd is telling him he can't breathe long before he is put on the ground. Right. So once again, I think it all comes so, down to you believe that you know first off do you believe that he could breathe i think that's going to be something that the defense is going to have to 
show off on. I think that's where the defense has to start is how can you tell, how can you determine if he truly is, you know, having an issue breathing. I think the defense has the easiest case to give him out of second. I don't think he gets off completely clean, though. Like I said, I think what he did was manslaughter. I think it was a, I think it was um, reckless. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it was intent to harm. Right, and that's the thing that's intended to harm or injure. Um, and you got to remember, George Floyd's autopsy toxicology was. was pretty um and that that's going to play into the defense as well. Do you think they're Cuz I know they're I I know they're arguing about evidence regarding cause of death. Hmm. Now this will definitely be something to keep our eye on and something interesting to keep our eye on cuz I was talking to uh uh, Manic Hispanic last night, like I said, on American Idiots about this, and I actually saw on the news story I used where they talked about the uh, racial makeup of the jury. Now, with that being said, this is probably the biggest, as far as race relations, the biggest case since OJ, wouldn't you agree? Uh, as far as how pivotal it's going to play? I, I don't mean, know necessarily. I, I, I don't know necessarily because really um, I, I don't think it doesn't with O.J. Simpson opinions were along racial lines. If you were Caucasian, you believed OJ did it. If you were not, you believed you didn't. For the right. most part. However, um, I don't think this is really. I don't think this is that can be that simplified. Uh huh. Because there are just too many factors um, that go. But. George Floyd had fentanyl and methamphetamine in his system. Mm-hmm. That's not good. Right. Right. Like I said, I think this truly will come down to, you know, the difference between, man, intent is, using that word intent is almost like pre-med. It's, it's not vague, but you know what I mean? It's open to interpretation. Like, what is this jury going to consider intent? Is this jury well, going to consider... Well, no, and, and that's that's a thing, though. The jury will be given whatever Minnesota's case law defines. Okay. They'll so be given a definition of intent. Intent will be defined for them in the jury instructions. Okay. Under Minnesota okay. law. That make it a little bit easier. Um, so, you know, I I just don't – I think what Chauvin did was reckless. 
I think mm-hmm. I don't understand why he was kneeling on his neck at all. Right. Um, but again, I, I think it was kind of hard for the officers, first of all, when they put George Floyd on the ground. If you look at the body cam video from the time they encounter him and the time they hook him up with the handcuffs, he starts saying he can't breathe. Okay. And he's talking fast and he's um, upset and he's, you know, again, I think he was either trying to talk his way out of trouble or... um, perhaps, like I said, trying to kind of lull the officers into relaxing their grip so that he could flee. Because some people think that they can run with their hands cuffed behind their back. Right. And so get away and police think, won't chase them. You don't think the work, the intent part is going to play as big a part in this is what I'm thinking? I, 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 don't, I think they're going to have a hard time proving that he intended to cause George Floyd any harm. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was reckless, but I don't think they can, they're going to be able to prove that he intended to hurt George Floyd or kill him. Okay. Okay. Um, that he, you know, uh, and that's what it comes down to. You, you may not have to have intent to cause the death, but you have to have the intent to cause an injury. Mm-hmm. That was, results in death and I think it's going to be hard because if he testifies that he was just you know and another thing I haven't watched the video but Mm. I'm kind of curious because I think they were trying to get him in the vehicle and he would not go in the vehicle and he resisted going in the vehicle well you're definitely and that he ended up being put in one side and brought out the other because of an issue when he was in the vehicle. It's been And that's how he ended up on the ground. It's been eight months, but that vaguely sounds right. Um Chauvin pulled him out of the one side, I believe, and then that's when he went to the ground and Chauvin, you know, eight and a half minutes, I guess, could also I guess, I don't know, there's so much here. It'd be interesting to look at the definition by Minnesota uh, law of what intent is, because that would clear up a lot of my questions on this, because, I mean, I guess technically you could say intent is eight and a half minutes cutting off someone's airway, but, I mean, that's open to interpretation as well. And... Another thing that kind of that kind of bothered me when I was watching some of the videos, the mm-hmm. bystanders who are talking to the cops mm-hmm. and haranguing the cops, that doesn't help. Oh, yeah, 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 no. Because then you're making the cops think we're about to be you know, we're about to have bystanders getting involved. I remember, I remember we actually said that shit the 
you know, when this was still fresh and we were talking about it on American Idiots, we were like, people need to realize you can stand there quietly and film this shit. You don't have to yell at people. That's just uh-huh. going to escalate the situation further than what it needs to be. Right. Right. Not to mention you can um, get your ass thrown in jail. Exactly. So, and then you ain't doing nobody um, good. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't know. There, there are so many things, and you know, I've seen um, on Big Brother people talking about this and and talking about how, oh, afterwards it comes out about uh, criminal history or. Yeah. They had drugs or whatever. But, you know, let's put it in context. It should be in context. And part of the problem with this new world we're in is that um, often people's perceptions of what something means. Right. Take precedence over what the person actually intended. Even though we're talking about his toxicology and what have you in this, in this, by no means do I do I want you to get the impression that Lisa's saying just because the guy was high he deserved to die. Lisa is not saying that. (laughs) By any stretch, not at all. Don't get that Um, impression for our listeners. But uh, and that's the thing. A lot of times, people's perceptions of things are overshadow what the actual intent behind something was. Right. For example, um, the controversy over the Bachelor contestant who, in 2018, I believe it was was in college and she's from the South and in 2018 she and her friends had what they called the plantation party and they wore long froofy dresses and they posed for a picture on the lawn Um, and I think also at some point she liked somebody's picture on Facebook and in that picture on Facebook was a Confederate flag Mhm. And instead of talking to this young lady and asking her what her intention was, what her understanding was, what she meant, you know, did she like the picture because of the flag or did she like the picture for some other reason? Um right. someone who sees that like says she's a racist because there's a Confederate flag and she liked that picture. Mhm. Or, you know, she's racist because she and her friends had a plantation party. Well, you know, not necessarily. Did we ask her what their intentions were? Did they do it because they were racist? Did they do it because they thought the dresses were pretty? Right. Yeah. I mean, um, and... The cancel culture, I think, too, has become, of course, it's now biting because it's biting, it's biting uh, Cuomo on the ass. 
Oh my God. <laughs> Woo! We've been talking about him quite a bit. That dude just needs to go ahead and call it quits. Oh, uh, so yeah, but you know that again. Here's the fine line. He's been accused of wrongdoing, but he hasn't been tried and convicted. But people are calling for him to resign. Well, yeah, uh, I think people are. Yeah. I think a lot of people are calling for him to resign though because of his previous statements on things that have to do with that. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, he's he's proven to be a hypocrite. Yeah, exactly. He's being held accountable, he's, I guess I should say. Yeah. Or well, and, I, you know, there's nothing wrong with being held accountable, but I don't think also, though, I don't think it necessarily should result in him having to resign his post. You know, I think if he were to admit I was out of line, I, you know, crossed the line, I shouldn't have done it, and to apologize to the women who victimized, mm-hmm. you know, then he should be, that should be enough. That should be good enough. Right. And that he should, you know, be especially careful in the future that he doesn't cross the lines again. <sighs> Absolutely. And that should yeah. be, you know, that should be enough. I don't think it's right to demand that someone lose their livelihood, their career, their home, everything that they've built because of a mistake, especially if it's a mistake that they're willing to admit and apologize for. Right. You know, that's that's not right. And it's, you know, it's kind of funny that's happened in Cuomo, who is one of the, you know, most progressive liberal governors out there. True. Uh, I wonder whose Wheaties he pissed in. (laughs) Or cornflakes he pissed in. But, um, you know, I, I think if, if you make a mistake, you should be able to admit it, apologize and go on and not make it again. Right. And if you make it again, that's your ass. Yeah. So, but, uh, all right, well, that is it. Okay, let's put a bow on it. Yep. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us on Tuesday, March 23rd, 2021 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 3, State of California versus Skylar DeLeon and Jennifer DeLeon. Due to her upcoming new release, Kate Monrother won't be able to join us, but we'll still talk about the 2004 murders of Tom and Jackie Hawks. The Prescott, Arizona retirees were in Orange County, California, to sell their 55-foot yacht the well-deserved. DeLeon, a former child actor, posed as a buyer, and with accomplices John Fitzgerald Kennedy and Alonzo Machen, took the boat and its owners out for a cruise from which the Hawkses never returned. We'll talk about Tom and Jackie, their family, their last voyage, 
and to Leon's unsuccessful and sloppy efforts to cover up the crime. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.